Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The thing you never wanted to hear, ever, was Skybird, this is Dropkick, with a red dot four message in five parts. Because that was it. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list to keep up with the latest episode. Richard Stahursky joined the US Air Force in 1962 on the cusp of the Cuban Missile Crisis as a security police officer guarding nuclear-armed B-58 Hustler bombers. Within two years, he volunteered for the Minuteman Nuclear Missile Program where he served as a Deputy Missile Combat Crew Commander Richard was a junior officer on a two-man crew in a launch control capsule buried beneath the South Dakota prairie who were charged with monitoring the status and launching, if necessary, 10 Minuteman intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles. In 1965, he was selected to be loaned to NASA to support the activation and operation of the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, Texas. He worked his way up to being a network controller who sat two consoles to the right of the flight director in the mission operations control room. He was responsible for all the ground systems that supported an Apollo mission and was selected as the lead network controller on Apollo 11, working both the launch from Earth and the first ever launch from the lunar surface. Now, Cold War history is disappearing, but a simple monthly donation will help keep this podcast on the air. You'll be part of our community, you'll get a sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. This is Mary O'Grady. Anyone who's interested in Cold War history should definitely subscribe and support Cold War Conversations. Thank you. If a monthly contribution is not your cup of tea, we also welcome one-off donations via coldwarconversations.com slash donate. I'm delighted to welcome Richard Stahursky to our Cold War Conversation. When I was in college, I studied history. I did reasonably well at it. In fact, when I was due to graduate, I was offered a fellowship at Princeton, but I was just tired of studying history, and I decided rather presumptuously that I wanted to go out and try and make some. And the Air Force seemed like a good opportunity to do that. Had you had aspirations to fly or be a pilot, or or 
you know, what, what did you think you were going to do in the Air Force? Um, I did not have aspirations to be a pilot because I had been wearing glasses since I was 16 years old. <laughs> so I, right. I just wasn't qualified for that kind of work. But I was just interested in having a choice of a variety of assignments in a variety of places in the world. Also interested in making a contribution to my country. Do they do some sort of aptitude test as to what sort of role you're going to be suitable for? Uh, no, they do not. The thing that they do is they give you something called the Air Force Officer Qualification Test. I was in the ROTC, Reserve Officer Training Corps in college, and normally they give you a reserve commission when you graduate. But I took the AFOQT and scored high enough that I was given a regular commission which in those days gave you a slight edge relative to promotion consideration. But there was, there was no uh, testing relative to career orientation. And what was the, uh, your, your first assignment? My first assignment was to Bunker Hill Air Force Base in Indiana to the 305th Combat Defense Squadron, which was a uh, squadron part of the 305th bomb wing medium, one of the last two medium bomb wings in the U.S. Air Force, B-58 Hustlers. And what, what was your role there? The Combat Defense Squadron was security police. We were responsible for the uh, security of the base. And so um, I, I was a, a, essentially a, a shift supervisor for base security operations, ro rotating eight-hour shifts, days, nights, and midnights, checking guard posts, make sure things were organized properly, that sort of thing. B-58 Hustler was a nuclear bomber, a supersonic nuclear bomber. You joined at uh, rather a, let's say, interesting time. Yes, yes. I joined up just before the start of the Cuban Missile Crisis. I went on active duty in August of 1962. What sort of impact did that crisis ha have on your role? I'm presuming the, the tempo of what you had to do changed. Um, yeah, it, it meant that there was additional security to be applied. And we, instead of working rotating eight-hour shifts, we worked 12-hour shifts. And since I was a junior officer... I got the night shift. So through the Cuban Missile Crisis, I worked a 12-hour night shift, seven days a week. Did you have any understanding of how critical the international situation was where you were? I think I did, yes. It, it was clear to me that if anything happened, we were a primary target. You know, we were going to be struck as quickly as they could get to us. Were there any sort of incidents during that period that, that stood out for you? There were several incidents, some of them connected to the crisis itself. And at least one, the one that stands out the most, was a very personal experience. Um, this assignment to Bunkerville Air Force Base was the first time that I was out on my own. You know, just a kid, first time away from home. And I left behind in New York a wife and an infant child. And I went to, to uh, the air base with a mission of trying to find a place for us to live. 
I found one, and I made arrangements for my wife and child to, to fly out and join me. Well, on the day that they were to uh, arrive, I had a call from my wife. She said she was in Chicago. Her flight to Indiana had been canceled. She wasn't sure what the prospects were for the next day. I didn't know what to do. I, I was staying in the bachelor officer's quarters at the time on base, and I was, as I was trying to sort out this catastrophe, I walked into the day room where there were four or five people watching television, and one of the officers in there said to me, what happened to you? You look like your dog died. And I explained to him what was going on. And, and the individual that, I, that was asking me about it was a Captain James Whitehead, a tanker pilot. I explained the situation to them, and he said, why don't you go get her? And I said, my car is not operating properly. I've been having trouble with it overheating. And he said, okay. And he reached in his pocket, and he pulled out a set of car keys, and he dropped them on the table. And he said, it's the new Buick in the parking lot out there. I'm going on alert. I don't need it for three days. Go. And I said, well, well, I don't have enough cash for gas and stuff. You know, we were only paid $222 a month. Yeah. We often ran out of money before we ran out of month. And um, there was another man there in the room. He was a General Electric tech rep. The hustler used General Electric engines. And so they had advisors from the contractors if there were problems with the engines. And he pulled out his wallet and handed me $50 and said, go. And so I did. I drove to Chicago, found my wife in the hotel, stayed with her overnight, and drove her back to Indiana the next day. And that experience convinced me that I had come to the right place. I had joined the right outfit. Yeah, that's amazing generosity, that. That, that's incredible. How far is it from Indiana to Chicago? My geography of the U.S. is not great. Probably not more than, in this case, about 150 miles. And, and in terms of other experiences, I guess there were two. One was during the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of our jobs was to guard the special weapons facility, the nuclear weapons facility. During the course of the crisis, there was a delivery of weapons that we were instructed to store in a separate facility. And we were never told what they were. And to this day, I don't know what they were and why they were had to be handled so, so carefully and separately. I, I guess the other experience <laughs> was one, I was on duty one night on the midnight shift, as I said, and my sergeant and I were driving in a truck. We were checking guards out along the runway. And we, I had my window rolled down because it was a relatively warm night still. And we went into a dirt road that was at right angles to the runway looking for a guard that was supposed to be there. And we couldn't find him. And so we're going very slowly along this road. And we stop at one point. And this figure leaps up out of a ditch alongside the road, and it's a carbine right between my eyes, an inch away from my forehead. And I'm like, holy whatever. 
And my sergeant, you know, I was afraid to say anything. And my sergeant took over and he asked the, the guard, what are you doing? And he said, this is the way we did it in Korea. And he said, you're not in Korea anymore. You're in Indiana. Put that thing down. And at that point, he confiscated the weapon from the guard, relieved them. It, it was a bit scary. Uh, yeah, I, I'd imagine that's a, a massive understatement <laughs> there. Wow. Wow. Incredible. As I go on, I emphasize the people who helped me along the way. They, Some people were just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That guy really uh, brave handing you a brand new Buick as well, I guess. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he he was just so generous. How how long were you in this role for as a security police officer? I wasn't there very long, probably less than a year. When I became convinced that it really wasn't very challenging, it was a lot of repetitive work, checking guard posts, uh, ensuring procedures were followed, make sure physical security facilities were up to date, that sort of thing. And and it became clear, too, that it wasn't a place, if you were looking for advancement as an officer, to spend your time. So I started to think about going somewhere else. At the time, they were beginning to activate the Minuteman system. And so in order to attract crew members, officers to be crew members, they were offering an MBA, a master's business administration degree. So I said, okay, I'll get out of here. I'll volunteer to do that. And I did. And I was accepted. Can you just explain to me what the Minuteman system was? Yeah, the Minuteman was and still is an intercontinental uh, ballistic missile system. There were four or five bases located mostly in the northern part of the United States. And uh, the the place you operated from was a, a launch control center, and each of the launch control centers controlled 10 missiles. And so you had under your control 10 uh, Minuteman missiles each uh, equipped with multiple nuclear warheads. And your job was to monitor the systems, make sure they were maintained and kept operational, and then the launch to execute one order. And how old were you at this point? Um, I was 23 years old. Wow. Wow. I've seen sort of like films of these launch control bunkers for, for lack of a better word. And I hadn't realized that they actually controlled 10 missiles. I'd imagine that each silo had a command bunker attached to it. But w what you're saying is there were they, they were able to launch 10 missiles. Yeah, each launch control center, which was a concrete and steel capsule buried probably 50 feet under the South Dakota prairie, was connected to... 10 launch silos, which were scattered in uh, various locations surrounding the launch control center. I mean, did they test you for your, you know, your psychological stability or anything like that before you take 
a role like this? Interestingly enough, they did not. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Because you mentioned that, that you found a uh, security police officer role quite boring. How was this different? Because, I mean, you mentioned monitoring systems and things like that. This sounds pretty repetitive, too. Well, one of the inducements was the uh, opportunity for a graduate degree. But the other part was that this was a new system. It was state-of-the-art, and I was extremely interested in finding out how and why it worked. And uh, also, because it was a new program at the forefront of, you know, Air Force activity, there was opportunity there to to uh, be recognized and and make some advancement. Yeah, no, I, I, I can understand that. I think I've read a number of people who served did use the time that you were in these bunkers to um, study as well. Ironically enough, I started to study for the MBA degree, and I found it so boring that I gave it up. <laughs> so then I spent my time. We we worked twenty four hour shifts, and in fact, by the time we briefed and flew out to the site and did our shift and then traveled back, it was normally about a thirty hour shift. But when we were down in the hole, as we used to call it, uh, I, I would either read or study technical orders, checklists, to try and understand how things worked, why they worked, etc. When you say a 24-hour shift, so above the bunker... Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. From what I've seen, there's like beds and cooking facilities. So are you rotating with another crew on that 24 hours, or are you in the bunker for 24 hours? As I said earlier, the launch control center was a capsule steel and concrete about 50 feet below the prairie. And above it, there was a building, a support facility. And the support facility had a kitchen, a dining hall, and bunk rooms to support transient maintenance and security personnel. And in fact, that's where our meals came from. They were cooked above and then brought down to us. And there was no other crew we rotated with. We were there for 24 hours. We were allowed four hours sleep each, but sometimes we took more than that because who could tell the difference? As far as the security of of place, I mean, you, you wouldn't have been able to have launched independently. You would have had to have an instruction or a code to be able to launch? Yeah, that's true. Absolutely, that's true. There was a a system. We could receive launch orders through a various set of communication systems. First order one was called a primary alerting system, and it was a, a 
essentially a sort of telephone system, but but secure. And uh, they would deliver coded messages over the system. The messages you received were color-coded. They were, as I recall, yellow dot, green dot, blue dot, and red dot. And for example, a blue dot or training exercises. So if you received a blue dot launch order, you knew that was a training exercise. The thing you never wanted to hear ever was Skybird, this is dropkick with a red dot four message in five parts. Because that was it. Wow. How did you feel about the responsibility you had there? in that role, age 23. I mean, could you tell other people that that was what what your job was or were you, you know, did you have to keep it secret and just say, oh, I just work for the Air Force? No, we, we were allowed to talk about what we did. And, and we were a two-man crew, the missile combat crew commander and the deputy missile combat crew commander. I was a junior officer, so I was the deputy which usually both company grade officers, a captain and a lieutenant. You know, the the fact of the you know, the destructive power of of the weapons and that if you did get that order to launch, I mean with ten missiles you were gonna be potentially killing millions of people. Did that enter your mind at all, that thought? I have to admit that it did. Uh you know, our mission was deterrence, to persuade the other side not to start, not to launch their weapons. Once they did and we were ordered to launch, we our mission had failed. You know, they were clearly no longer being deterred. So if we launched, we'd just kill a couple of million more people. To what purpose? And so sometimes I had my doubts and I had to quiet them. <laughs> Both your um, mission crew commander and yourself would have to be in agreement in order to launch because you'd both have to turn the launch key simultaneously, wouldn't you? That's true, yes. Yes. My second crew commander, he was he was kind of funny at, with some of that stuff. At the time, we used to have the launch codes in little packets that we wore in a chain around our neck. He would go to bed at night when it was his turn to sleep, when it was his sleep shift, and he would take the thing off and hang it on an equipment rack, and he'd say, if you need this thing, don't wake me up. <laughs> of course, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything with it because, as you said, he had to turn two keys simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, what was it like doing the... Um the launch tests and and thinking through, I know this isn't for real, but this is what we would be doing. Most of the time when we did that, the focus was on following the procedures, following them correctly. It, it was on the micro instead of the macro. So it was essentially following a checklist and actioning it almost to the point of automation because you you know you know what to do absolutely 
There were checklists for everything, and they were all command response checklists. You know, it would say, you know, arm the missiles, which was my job as the deputy. And so the commander would say, arm four and six, and then I'd respond, four and six armed. So there was a demand response system. Yeah. And were were you both armed in there as well? Yes, yes. We we carried sidearms. But again, you know, when we were down there by ourselves, they were kind of a nuisance to have around your waist all day. So we'd take them off and hang them on an equipment rack. <laughs> are there are there any other incidents sort of during that period as a a missile ear? let's say, um, that that stand out for you? Well, there are two things that stand out. Number one was we came on shift one day, and we when we changed crews, we had a briefing from the off-going crew, as you'd expect. And we came on duty in the Lima Launch Control Center, and there had been a broken arrow at the Lima 2 launch site. The term broken arrow is used by the US military to refer to an accident that involves nuclear weapons or nuclear weapons components, but does not create the risk of a nuclear war. The retro rocket on the third stage of a missile had fired and blown the warhead up against the door that covered the silo. The warhead hit the door, fell, and broke in half when it hit the base ring that the missile stood on. And so we were there to clean it up. That was... Mm. So what you're saying is one of the rockets on the missile partially f- fired? Uh, yeah, but this wasn't a case where the missile tried to launch. Didn't even fire the third stage. The third stage had a retro rocket. So when you separated the warhead of the missile or the third stage... You didn't want the third stage to follow the warhead in because it provided too big a radar target. So it had a retro rocket that would take it out of the path of the warhead. And it was this retro rocket on the third stage that fired and just blew the warhead up against the door. How dangerous was that as a situation? It was almost zero danger in terms of producing any kind of explosion. But there was some danger relative to radiation uh, locally. And even there, in this case, it was very minimum. There was very little damage to the actual core of the warhead. And, and how do you go around clearing that up? Well, maintenance crews had to open the silo and go down into it and, um, you know, begin the process of retrieving the warhead and cleaning up the remaining radiation products. It was a long process. And and they secured a fairly wide area around the silo. I guess if you're stuck in that steel capsule with somebody for 24 hours, you've uh, got to get on with them reasonably well. My second crew commander was a captain named Ray Hamill. And he was a B-52 pilot who had volunteered for Minuteman, and he was just a super guy to work for. I mean, he had a marvelous sense of humor, and so he could make that 24 hours, you know, a lot lighter than it might otherwise have been. 
so that was a very positive experience yeah yeah i mean it sounds like you've been lucky you know coming across officers who either help you or are, are supportive to you this this is only the beginning <laughs> well yeah how how long are you doing the um the minuteman for uh two years and the tour the tour normally would have been longer than that but i was selected to go elsewhere tell me about that selection to go elsewhere what how how were you approached and uh and what happens it's kind of a strange story we like strange stories on here, Richard. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'm your kind of guy. I was in the squadron offices one day, and, and a mate of mine came up and said, did you see your name on the list on the bulletin board? And I said, no, what list? He said, oh, it's a personnel posted a list of people who are supposed to go for an interview for jobs with NASA. And I said, What? And so I went and looked, and sure enough, that was my name to go to Houston to be interviewed. And I thought, well, you know, I have a degree in history, so I'm never going to work for NASA. But it's South Dakota. It's damn cold. So a couple of days in Houston, sunshine won't hurt. So off I'll go. So I went and and um, did the interview and uh, was met with some skeptical eye rolls. And that's the people I talked to, and went back to to Ellsworth Air Force Base where I was stationed. And in about a week or so, I was told that I had been selected. This was a program. NASA was just beginning to open up the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, and they were short of personnel. And so there was an an Air Force Colonel named Lieutenant Colonel Henry Pete Clements. And Pete had been had worked with Chris Kraft on the Mercury and Gemini programs at the Cape. And Kraft was so pleased with Clements' support that he asked the Air Force to loan him on a, you know, a semi-permanent basis. And so the Air Force did that, and Pete became head of the operations support branch there in Houston. And he's the one who suggested they try and borrow some Air Force officers. And the agreement was, yes, you can have 128. I don't know why they picked that number. And uh, go ahead and, Pete, you'd be in charge of the selection board. And so uh, he was the one who selected me. (laughs) Sometime later, after I had been there in Houston for, I don't know, a year or so, I was at a party. We had a party for the Air Force officers, and I asked Colonel Clements, Pete, why it was he had selected me. And he had a rather eccentric sense of humor. He said to me, I just wanted to see how a liberal arts puke would make out in this environment. <laughs> I said, okay. So that, that's the strange story, how I ended up there. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. And what was the the role that you were selected for? Well, because of my background, when I went there initially, they put me in what was called the Flight Operations Scheduling Office. And I ended up in charge of scheduling tests between Houston and all of the tracking stations around the world. So in my typical fashion, I had to understand all I could about that. 
And uh, so I had some help from some people at Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland who, uh, you know, normally oversaw the operation of those sites. And I became fairly expert on how they operated. So the next thing I knew was they said, okay, we're going to move you over and we're going to make you a network controller. Well, the network controller sat in the operations control room in the main room that you see on television at a console, just two consoles to the right of the flight director. And the job of the network controller was to oversee all of the ground support systems that supported a mission. So in the case of Apollo 11, that was 17 ground stations around the world, four ships and eight aircraft and all the communications in between. So that's what we were responsible for in that role. Wow. Wow. So you you were in what I would call mission control. Yes. And you are just two desks to the right of the flight director. Yes. Wow. Wow. And and you're working on Apollo 11, the first lunar, mis- landing, yes. lunar landing. Yeah, sorry. I, I, I was, you know. So excited, I couldn't put my words together there. So you're working on um, Apollo 11. I mean, that, I, I, I don't know how you, you, you know, you, you sort of take that in, that you're going to be part of something so historic. Yeah, I, the first manned mission I worked on was Apollo 9, and then I worked on 10. And when 11 came, you're, you're right. There was this real sense of of excitement, but there was also this can-do attitude that we were going to get this done, even though it's the first time and there were a lot of questions. We were going to get this done. I guess we were just young and optimistic. With Apollo Eleven, which parts of the the mission you're you're involved in? Because you're presumably working shifts, so you, there's another network controller that takes over from you. You know, how does that shift pattern work? The way that shift pattern worked is we trained by mission phase because there were different circumstances in each phase that required some specialization. So there were separate teams. And so on Apollo 11, I was on a Cliff Charlesworth's team. He was a flight director for the launch from the Earth. And then I was on the team that did the first ever launch from the moon. Those were the two uh, mission phases that I trained for. And other network controllers trained for, for example, a major named George Ogiletto, who was the lead network controller for the actual landing phase. So we trained by phase, and that's how the shifts were aligned. How long were you working during those phases could it it could be variable i guess or not it was variable but in most cases they weren't terribly long partly that had to do with making sure that the crew wasn't overly stressed or fatigued what was the atmosphere like on that day when you're you know you're i mean how (laughs) sorry i'm stumbling over my words here but um on the day of launch did you sleep much that night or how how was, you know, what was it like 
what what was your mind going through and and how did you feel well i had decided to quit smoking which i had been doing since i was about 16 years old and i picked the 15th of july to stop smoking which was just before launch and i sure as heck regretted doing that <laughs> I was more than a little bit nervous. We used to laugh. We used to say we were so nervous that we were biting holes in our seat cushions. And uh, yeah, it was it was stressful, but also exciting. I I can't imagine the you know de- well. I mean, we've already gone through a couple of roles with immense responsibility. This one is also immense responsibility, but the eyes of the world are on you know, the the job that you're doing yes. that day. I mean... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. As the countdown gets nearer to liftoff, what are you doing? Are you just constantly checking that you're getting the signals from all of these ground stations? Um, there's a bit more to it than that. Yeah, I, we I'm the- oversimplifying, I know. <laughs> Each network controller had what was called an instrumentation support team. We were on the first, third floor of the building there, mission control. On the first floor, I had a crew that specialized one group in tracking, one group in sending commands to the spacecraft, one in receiving telemetry, one in receiving air-to-ground communications. So we obviously trained as a team. And, for example, on, on launch day, we ran a checklist. And as each phase of the launch process unfolded, we had to make sure that the appropriate ground station or the appropriate system was in place and operating. And so we would, you know, configure it, check it out, and then essentially turn it over to the operation. So it it, it was busy and active. And when you you knew that Apollo 11 had had taken off. Was was that a relief or was your job only just starting at that point? It, it was just starting because I had to look forward to working the launch from the moon. And of course, very, very importantly was the intermediate step of the landing. In fact, when we got to the to the landing phase, I had worked a shift just before the landing phase started. And uh so I left the control room and I went over to the bunk room. There was a bunk room between the wings, the two wings of the building there at Mission Control. And those of us who were on the launch from the moon team weren't allowed to leave the building once they landed. 
in case they had to get off in a hurry. So I went over to the uh, bunk room, figured eventually to try and get some sleep. And uh, I was just getting ready to crawl in and take a nap. Well, I waited and I listened to the landing. I went to one of the staff support rooms and I listened to the landing. And once they had landed, I went to the bunk room because they were supposed to wait some hours before they came out on the lunar surface. Well, as I said, as I was getting ready to, to, to get some sleep, someone came in and said, they're getting out early. They asked for permission. It was granted. They're going to do it now. So I got myself up and dragged myself into the day room where the television was and where we had speakers that broadcast communications from the spacecraft and sat there on the tile floor in my underwear <laughs> and, and watched the first steps on the moon. Wow. When they were doing the landing, were you aware of them getting low on fuel with Armstrong basically noticing that you know, where they were coming down, they couldn't land, and he's then manually flying it on a little bit further. Were you aware of how tense that moment was? Yes, yes. Yeah, I was I was listening to all of it. Each of the positions in the control center had its own communication circuit. It was called a loop. And so when you called someone, for example, you'd say, network, come control my loop. So they knew where to respond. And so we had these circuits up and we were listening to them in, in the network staff support room. Each of the positions in the control center had a staff support room that provided specialized in-depth uh, support if they needed it. So when the landing was approaching and I was off shift, I went back there to listen. And uh, yeah, we were all, you know, well aware of the circumstance with the fuel and they're having to overshoot those obstacles. But there wasn't, at that point, a heck of a lot to be done about it. No, I mean, um, it's portrayed really well, I think, that sequence in um, First Man, I think it is, the film. Have you seen that? Yes, yes. I mean, it's portrayed from, well from my point of view. I mean, you, you've probably got loads of um, technical criticisms as to how they... <laughs> <laughs> how they uh, uh, portray that. But I think the tenseness of it, I think, really um, comes across there. So they land, but as you say, you are the network controller for the launch of the, um, the top half of the lunar module from the moon. Now, this is something that's never been done before. And if it doesn't fire... The two astronauts, Armstrong and Aldrin, are going to die on on there. Yes. Again, this must be a really tense time because there's, there's one go at this and one go only. It was tense, yes, absolutely. And then it got really scary. We uh, They ignited the engine. And all the data dropped out. We lost all communications with the spacecraft. And uh, so I'm totally, you know, 
dumbfounded and trying to figure out what we can do about that. And then I hear on the loop, this, this is Madrid on net one. We have lunar module acquisition of signal. And I went up on the loop and I said, Madrid, you're beautiful. <laughs> and the station manager at Madrid answered very matter-of-factly. Matter he said, network, we try and do the best we can. <laughs> but what had happened is we had neglected to, to understand that when the engine ignited, it would generate ionized gas, which would shield all the antennas. So momentarily, the data dropped out, as it should have at that point, and we just hadn't considered that. But it was scary as hell. Because I, I guess you, you're thinking, has it blown up, or, or what's happened? Yes. Whew. The only other scary moment I had is when I, because the network controller was responsible for mission control, um, they, when they finished a the mission, they hung a plaque on the wall there in the control room. And because we were responsible for the building and its operation, we were the ones who had the honor of hanging this plaque. Well, you had to get on a ladder and climbed up a very high, toward a very high ceiling to put the thing in place. And I had the great honor of doing that, but it occurred to me that that was the only part of the mission we'd never rehearsed. <laughs> so here I go, shaky as can be, trying to climb up there and, and hoping I could get this thing placed on a hook. And, and I started up the ladder, and some young lady there in the, in the room gave me a push on the behind and said, get up there. And I did it, and finally I got that. I had the great honor of hanging the Apollo plaque. When you when you stepped off the ladder, you didn't do you know one small step for network controllers and. You know. No, they they'd already done that. But. <laughs> Did you watch the uh, splashdown and the return to Earth? Are you you know in and around mission control for that? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. If we weren't on shift, we went back to the staff support room to where we could listen. Or we went down to the first floor where our support teams worked and listened. Yeah, I, I guess the the well, it, it's all pretty tense, isn't it? But the 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 whole re-entry must have been a very tense moment as well. It was a tense moment, but it was another one of those things that once it started, there wasn't anything you could do. Yeah, yeah. As I said, at first the first manned mission I worked with was Apollo Nine, and. Uh, then I worked in 11 and 12. And then on 13, I wasn't in the control room. I worked in the staff support room. And that was an interesting experience. You can't leave it like that, Richard. So so tell tell me about your experiences with, with 13. It's I keep making movie references, but it's probably one of my favorite films, that one. It, it was very well done, actually. I was on duty, as I said, in the staff support room. The uh, people there in Houston, the they backup crews and the system experts were trying to develop procedures for the crew to use to preserve oxygen, to clean carbon dioxide out of the air, et cetera, et cetera. And they would develop a procedure and then they would want to test it. And the way they tested it was to call up the simulator at the Cape 
and have a crew there go through the procedure to see if it was workable. Well, my job in the staff support room was to bring up the communications links between Houston and the simulators at the Cape and then listen to them to make sure everything operated properly and, and take appropriate action if they didn't. So I got to listen to all these things they were trying to put together to help the crew, and it was scary sometimes. They were making hoses out of checklist pages that they taped together with duct tape, you know, to, to transfer gases of one sort from one spacecraft to the other. It was pretty perilous. Yeah, it was literally sticky tape and manual covers and bits of tubing, you know, whatever they could whatever, yes. whatever they could find to try and yeah. get that to work. Where were you when you heard that the mission had, had got into trouble? Were you in mission control? I was. I was. But I don't remember the exact circumstances of where I was at the time and how I heard it. Was it very apparent of the gravity of the, the situation almost immediately? It was, yes because the, the system experts were able to make a pretty quick assessment of what the consequences of the explosion back there were. They first thought the uh, source of the problem was a little different than it actually was, but they quickly sorted that out. So they knew pretty directly what was going on, you know, and decided pretty quickly to abort the mission and send them into, you know, a, a circular orbit around the moon and bring them back. An incredible story and a, and a fantastic movie that I always recommend to anybody who's, who's not seen that. And was 13 the last uh, mission you, you worked on? No, I worked on 14 as well. Okay. And was that, were you doing the same sort of um, sections of the mission, the launch from Earth and the, the moon launch? I think on 14 I worked the launch of the Earth. That was the primary thing I worked because I remember um, the spacecraft being struck by lightning, which was kind of scary. Yeah. Yeah. Within Apollo and the environment there, the people who were working amongst you were very young or were there some, you know, like World War II veterans there? You know, what, what was the profile of, of the team that were working on the Apollo program? They were predominantly young people. The oldest person, you know, in the on the operating team was flight director Gene Kranz, and he was 36. I was 28, and most of the people were in that sort of range. And it, some days, you know, when we were doing training or simulations, it was like being in a fraternity house. I was I was sitting at my console one day during a training exercise. During normal business hours, we wore a you know, a short sleeve shirt and tie and slacks, like all the NASA civilians. During a mission, we were in uniform, but when we trained and during normal business hours, we wore the same garb as everybody. And I was sitting there, there was a coffee pot on the, on the sort of up and behind us there. Dave Reed, who was one of the flight dynamics officers, came up and he went behind me and I didn't think anything of it. I thought he was headed for the coffee pot. And he reached around with a pair of scissors and he cut my tie off. And they thought that was funny as hell. And it was sometimes that kind of frat house environment. 
I guess in those sort of situations, whilst you've got to be professional, there's got to be some humour. Yes. And that's not the end of Richard's amazing career. Don't miss part two next week. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. If you'd like to help the project, just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information